Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. So hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. And today, it's my pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Heidi Larson, Professor of Anthropology and Risk and Decision Science at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and Clinical Professor of Health Metric Science at the University of Washington. In 2010, Heidi founded the Vaccine Confidence Project in order to understand the factors underpinning vaccine hesitancy and the challenge of misinformation related to vaccines, which in 2019, the World Health Organization listed as one of the top 10 challenges to global health. In 2020, she published the book Stuck to explore how rumors about vaccines get started and why they don't go away. More recently, inspired in part by the pandemic experience of the past three years, she's launched the Global Listening Project, a new initiative dedicated to driving real understanding and positive action to prepare society in times of crisis. Heidi is no stranger to CSIS podcasts. She has been a guest on earlier series, including Coronavirus Crisis Update and Pandemic Planet. So Heidi, welcome back to the world of CSIS podcasts and welcome to our new podcast, The Common Health. Great. Thanks to you and team. So, you know, I guess I should start out by saying happy World Immunization Week, right? It's just getting underway today. And, you know, in some ways, those in the immunization advocacy world, you know, are really saying we should be celebrating World Immunization Year, that it shouldn't just be one week, but really, you know, that the challenges are great enough, we should be talking about immunizations all the time. And that's, you know, really because we saw gaps in access to routine immunizations widen during the first few years of the pandemic, and for a variety of reasons, during lockdown periods in early 2020, Parents either couldn't or were afraid to take their children into clinics for routine shots. But we also saw attitudes about the new COVID vaccines for adults really influence how people feel about vaccines in general. So this year's theme is the big catch up. And now, right before the start of World Immunization Week, UNICEF released the State of the World's Children report. And for the first time ever, the report focuses exclusively on routine immunizations. It highlights the challenges, the growing numbers of zero-dose children, and an increasing proportion of unvaccinated children living in the lowest-income quintiles. So really a widening gap, uh, both in terms of access to vaccines and really the concentration of that lack of access in among the, the most impoverished sectors of society. Now, the report also includes data from the Vaccine Confidence Project, showing that public perceptions of the importance of vaccines for children really dropped in the vast majority of the countries that that you all looked at. 
even as people feel that vaccines are important, you saw, I think, you know, really some important drops both in populations under the age of 35 and among women as well. And so I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about this data, about, you know, what you've seen in some of the latest surveys through the Vaccine Confidence Project and what you're seeing in terms of, you know, why people are having this kind of shift in attitude in terms of the importance of vaccines for children overall. And why do you think, you know, these particular groups, the younger population of parents and and women are perhaps more likely to be, I guess, more skeptical about the utility of vaccines? Yes, it's troubling times, I would say, in terms of the vaccine space, but you could see it as an opportunity. Because we've been monitoring a developed vaccine confidence index, and we've been monitoring confidence since 2015, we had a significant amount of background data on vaccine confidence around the world. And the whole idea of having an index and, uh, and monitoring is that you can see change, and you can see change around episodes that you didn't know about or you didn't expect, like a pandemic. Well, we knew we were going to have a pandemic sooner or later, but not when. But because of that, we were able to measure background confidence pre and post, well, post, I would say post the emergency side of the pandemic. We still have COVID to manage. It's really been a concerning trend and particularly concerning that it's not just It's about confidence in vaccines in in general, and particularly we saw that the perceived importance of vaccines for children dropped in a number of areas. The other big finding we had was that there's a growing gap in confidence between older and younger people, particularly the uh, 18 to 34-year-olds had the biggest drop in confidence, while there was a slight boost, interestingly, for uh, over 65, and that's probably because they were feeling appreciated the value of the vaccines during COVID because they were the more vulnerable ones. This index is not specific to COVID, but where people did have a positive experience around vaccination, it boosted their background confidence. And where they didn't, or where they were, I mean, particularly that younger group, it wasn't just about their vaccine experience. It was about the overall frustration, anger among some that they felt like they were paying the price for everybody else, particularly older people. They didn't get to go to school. They couldn't socialize. They were taking what they felt was a risk with the vaccine relative to their risk. And and they're correct to think that they aren't the most vulnerable. But by getting vaccinated, it contributed to the greater good, as it were. The concerning thing about that is that this is the next cohort of parents, and if, and some of them may already be parents. So that's, in terms of prioritization of where our efforts uh, go, I think we have a lot of work to do with particularly not only younger adults, but to start even in school to get a different understanding of how vaccines work, all the safety they go through, the rigor of safety. I think so many people just don't really understand and understand. (laughs) They haven't needed to, or they haven't been investigating and questioning so much to see the rigor that goes into vaccines. So we have the data going back. So we do see that the, the confidence level is very close. I mean, pretty much in the same amount uh, at the same level pre 
2020 between across across most ages, which was, there was a little bit higher trust in older and younger, but it was marginal. So that the, the age gap is a concern. The other thing we've seen, and in a parallel study with Edelman, they've also seen that the younger cohort, uh, 18 to 34, had 44% of them felt like they had as much information as the doctor. That's pretty high confidence in self-knowledge. So we've got this combination of the experience of COVID, but also this growing sense of self-confidence and the impact of this very challenging social media space. So we've got a lot of work to do and a lot of learning to do to really understand what's going on here. So you mentioned the importance of reaching adolescents and young people with with information, um, you know, really that in some ways that population is getting its its information about health in a way that is different from how their parents did and certainly how their their grandparents did and, and older generations. I want to ask you about the HPV vaccine and adolescents, but also get to that Edelman Trust uh, Barometer Report or the Special Focus on Health and Trust, which also came out last week. So, you know, over the course of the pandemic, coverage with the HPV vaccine, which protects, you know, which is normally given to adolescents kind of beginning age, can be given age nine and can now be given, you know, well into later decades, but, you know, has typically been focused on that adolescent and early adult period. Um, you know, really protects against a variety of HPV-related cancers. But over the course of the pandemic, for a variety of reasons, you know, access uh, to the HPV vaccine decreased or certainly stagnated in a number of places. The Gavi board has recently relaunched its HPV program, you know, committing $600 million to really kind of reignite uh, some of those demonstration projects and, and you know, other kind of scale-up projects in the countries that Gavi serves. But, you know, certainly there are beyond those lower income countries, a large number of middle income countries and either high and also high income countries where access to HPV vaccine has has become more challenged in recent years. Now, last year, the World Health Organization recommended a one dose regimen as opposed to the two or sometimes three that had been recommended in the past. That may make it a little bit easier to, to reach people. But, you know, we also know that trying to reach adolescents in school is, is challenging for, for the reasons that not everybody goes to school or, you know, the schools may not have students there, you know, over the entire portion of the year. And so, you know, there are a number of challenges around getting adolescents vaccines that, um, that may make for a more complex situation. Now, you have done quite a bit of work related to some of the early challenges with respect to introducing the HPV vaccines uh, and some of the um, crises that kind of led to rapid decreases in uptake, I think in Japan and Colombia and maybe a couple of other countries in the 2012-2013 period, right, when there were a number of, of challenges that generated quite a bit of uh, information and, and media uh, discussion about HPV. Thinking about, you know, some of the, the challenges then and how access was really restored and, and built up over, over many years, why is it critical to reach adolescents uh, with vaccine services at this point in time? And, you know, thinking about some of the responses that, that we're seeing in the Edelman barometer around how people are getting their information, what are some of the kind of unique 
approaches to, to adolescence that we may need to consider in, in this period moving forward? Well, I think it's um, not just about, in terms of adolescence, not just about getting them the services, but from even younger ages, to get them to understand and, you know, vaccines are my friends type of thing. And also, I think we have to frame it in a way where we talk about vaccines as stimulating your own natural immune system, uh, because that's what it does. And I think that somehow that nature framing resonates more these days, but it's actually honest. And I think that would be important, but also for kids to understand immune systems. You know, you can take all kinds of things to, quote, boost your immune system, but they're not going to stop a virus from infecting you. They might help you recover better, but they're not going to stop you from getting some of these diseases. So in terms of HPV, which is one of the ones that's some of the more successful programs are when they're given in schools, because on the one hand, not all kids are in school. But on the other hand, when they are in school, it's one time where you can get them all together because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult age to reach. I mean, particularly this is 9 to 11-year-old, 9 to 12-year-old um, girls, in some cases boys, where they have enough uh, resources. It's because you're past that antenatal regular visits with your baby or infant. So it can be a, a really good approach. Uh, again, in settings where not all kids are in school, you do want to find other ways. But uh, it's also an opportunity for, for teaching. I mean, if it is in school, it's another good ex, you know opportunity there. But HPV has typically been a, a more challenging vaccine. Uh, sometimes when you target initially, and it should be for all genders, but from a resource perspective, people are tending to focus on uh, girls with this vaccine because of cervical cancer, uh, which is the primary um, that girls have the highest burden. On the other hand, it does in certain settings that are suspicious or distrusting raise eyebrows about why only the girls, why those young girls of reproductive age, you know, what's going on here. And so it's we've had similar things with tetanus vaccine and anxieties about sterilization and all kinds of rumors. It's a complicated time, but it's it's a fantastic vaccine. And I think the fact that there have been a number of, of trials that have shown that um, one dose can be effective is will be, at least from an access point of view, make it much more manageable, hopefully. But we still need their confidence to take even that. And sometimes, by the way, it's not the girls, it's the mothers that are more of a challenge. Um, but sometimes it's both. Well, so you mentioned the the results from the Edelman Trust and Health surveys that had come out recently that suggested that a very high percentage, I think 44% of people between 18 and 34, you know, feel that they, you know, with a little bit of research are as knowledgeable as a healthcare professional around making health decisions, including vaccines. And I think some of the, maybe it was a different part of that survey, but some of the information also showed that people are really more and more you know, turning to friends and family or searching out that information on their own rather than consulting medical professionals. They're not only looking for that information, but they're, they're just not even necessarily going to, to health uh, professionals for their input in terms of making the decisions. And so, you know, I just wanted to ask you to reflect on how should this information that, that people's decision-making about health is really 
I guess, becoming more individualized and more fragmented in, in a lot of ways. How can that shape efforts to increase access, you know, and uptake of, of routine immunizations and, and associated health services more broadly? And are there things that governments and civil society organizations and even healthcare providers can or should do to, to change their approach? Well, I think we really need to diversify our approaches. Um, and I think we should learn a few things from the strategies of those who are trying to disrupt vaccination programs um, because they have really diversified the multiple strategies they use. And I think we, uh, as a public health community, tend to have a pretty homogeneous strategy and it, it doesn't work for everybody. And I think that what we are going to need to do is we should absolutely get out all the basic information that the public health community um, and public health institutions and medical institutions know are the most important things for people to know. But there needs to be another level of listening and responding to the questions and concerns and other things that come up uh, with people. And that's where I think we need to expand more in the area of chatbots, of maybe getting people sitting in waiting rooms who are not necessarily highly medically trained, but you can have a conversation with. They haven't should have enough information that they can help you um, answer some of their questions. People are missing the opportunity to have a conversation. Um, doctors these days um, and health professionals are generally incredibly stressed with time, the demands on them. I think for a lot of people, they turn to alternative information because they, they either can't afford to go to the doctor or they can't afford the time to go to the doctor or, you know, they, they don't know where to start with that. And to the extent that they can get the information themselves, they're going to, they're going to do that. And, and right now, you know, everybody's just on your fingertips, you can ask whatever you want, not necessarily knowing how good the information is. So we need to go where they're going, which we're not doing enough of. I think there's a lot of hesitation in the public health community and medical community to go in these kind of messy, uncontrolled social media spaces. But that's where people are. Uh, particularly that younger cohort. So we need to figure out ways to, to be there, to be responsive, and to be you know as credible and robust as we can. Because we look a lot in our research group on the, what we call the susceptibility factors. Why do some gobble up the misinformation and others just, it rolls right off of them? It's because they have a better story. They have better information. So we need to be out there with a better story that resonates but has the right information. So one of the things you've just emphasized is really the importance of listening to people's concerns and understanding, I guess, the narratives that, that they've formed in their mind about how vaccines come about, you know, where, uh, where they're useful and how they fit into the, the larger context of health. In your book, Stuck, you really emphasize the importance of listening to people's concerns and finding ways to, to respond to people's questions and, and worries in, as you've said, meet them where they are in their diverse areas. And of course, I think about a year ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, you launched the, the Global Listening Project. You've mentioned that you were inspired by some of the challenges from the pandemic, but that, you know, you really see 
listening and just creating space for talking and working through questions about decision making you know, to be you know, really fundamental to helping people address a wide variety of crises. So maybe health crises, but also terrorist attacks or natural disasters, climate change and, and the like. And so I wanted to ask you, now that you're a bit over a year into this project, what are your current priorities and what are you really learning about how to reach people? Are there kind of lessons across the board that apply to pandemics and terrorism and, and natural disasters? And you know, what, what really are you um, seeing in terms of how to reach people who are searching for advice and information in an emergency setting? Since we've started, we've run about 36 focus groups, um, uh, six in across different settings and groups in six major metropolitan areas, uh, Sao Paulo, New York, Paris, Abuja, Delhi, and Bangkok to try to get regional spread. Um, and from our analysis across these different settings and within each setting, quite a diverse group, uh, we've distilled quite a few common issues, questions, concerns, areas of interest that we're now about to We've distilled into an index survey, which we're about to roll out to 70 countries. And within that is things like trust in technology and ease and access to information, but also the whole experience of being able to cope and who they trusted and who they turned to. Um, so it'll we'll have this data and we'll be working on, on sharing this as something I'd love to uh, have a roundtable with the CSIS when um, the data starts coming in later in the summer. But now I, I would say, relevant to your question, one of the big things we heard in all of these settings was, we get that we need guidance in the context of an emergency. The problem was the government guidance that we heard didn't relate to our lives. And I think we have to really... To me, that struck such a strong chord as being a message we need is we need to make guidance, particularly in the context of emergencies, where you do need a bit of command and control because, you know, it's chaos. And so there needs to be a voice, a, a guiding light, so to speak, but with clear guidance, but relevant and to people's different lives and different situations. Obviously, you can't do that to the level of the individual, but we could have, it certainly could have been nuanced more in a number of settings. Even teachers told me, you know, they said we should, in the, in the cafeteria or where we give our kids school lunches, they say it should have been, you know, a meter between each child, you know, while we can keep the schools open. And they said, have these people ever been in a school cafeteria? You know, do they have any clue what the settings they're giving guidance for? So I think the most important thing is be relevant to people's lives. And the only way you're going to be relevant is if you listen and understand what that situation is. And that's important to do now where we can do some mapping because it's not the kind of thing you can start doing in the context of an emergency. That's a great way to end. Heidi Larson, thank you very much for taking the time to join me today. I've enjoyed being able to listen uh, to you and some of your thoughts about the importance of really engaging with a wide variety of 
decision makers and stakeholders both to provide information in a way that's accessible to the public at a variety of different levels, but you know, also to really be creative about thinking of ways to help prepare people for the challenges ahead. So I do hope we'll be able to work with you to really discuss and feature some of the information coming out of those uh, upcoming surveys and uh, look forward to seeing the results of that work and, and more to come. So thank you very much. Thanks so much and very much look forward to sharing, sharing the journey on this Global Listening Project. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.